Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Masana, and Memukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language 
proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. This is the Gospel of Christ. So we continue with our second reading, and this is from chapter 2 of the book of Esther. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what he'd decided about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now in the citadel of Susa, there was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemiel, the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she'd go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she'd go there, and the morning she would return to another part of the harem in the care of Shah Ashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She'd not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman whom Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, John. Thank you, Mel, for uh, <clears throat> reading that uh, one long, continuous reading. And just before we think on it, let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we give you great thanks for our church family. Thank you for the church family here at St. Stephen's. And over recent weeks, we've mourned with each other and rejoiced with each other. We've mourned as we've lost Janice Dodds. We've rejoiced at various things like Nathan and Letitia and today Josh and Aaron and the birth of Lucy and lots of other things going on in people's lives. Uh, we thank you that we go through these things together as your people. And we pray that now, over the next few minutes, we would go through this together. We would hear this part of your word a part of your word which seems so removed from us in so many different ways, and yet we know that by your spirit you still speak through your word to each of us. And we pray that you would speak to us now, individually and collectively as a church family. Deepen our love for you, draw us closer to you, and make us more like your son because of what we see in your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as has been said, today we are beginning a new book, a new series in the book of Esther. And one question to ask yourself might be, why? Why study the book of Esther? It's a, a fair question in many ways. The thing that Esther is most famous for, I think, is that it's the one book in the Bible which doesn't mention God. That might be a black mark against it, you might think. In fact, reformers like Calvin and Luther, those famous 16th century reformers, were so unkeen... Is that a word? No, probably not. So weren't keen on the book of Esther, they didn't write on the book of Esther. Calvin wrote commentaries on nearly every book in the Bible. He didn't on Esther. And it was in part because Esther doesn't mention God. Even if those two things don't worry you, if there weren't aspects to the chapters that we just heard read to us by Mel and John that unsettled us or that perhaps offended us, then you probably weren't listening closely enough. Uh, the second thing that Esther's most famous for, I think, first is God's not mentioned. The second thing is that she becomes a queen by winning a beauty contest. Isn't that outdated? Worse, isn't that kind of offensive? And it's pretty clear that it wasn't really a beauty contest. That's the children's Bible version of what went on. What went on was much darker and much worse than the beauty contest which is often associated with Esther. Why are we doing a study on this book? And, I can make it worse for you, I don't know much about Esther. I can't tell you who wrote it. I can't tell you who they intended their original audience to be. I can't even tell you what genre of literature it is. Well, people argue over what genre of literature it is. Some people say it's history. Other people will say, no, no, it's, it's myth. And you can see why people could come to both those um, uh, uh, points of view based on the reading today. It's written like history. There's... People and times and dates, and those people are real and the times are real. But there's also, there were seven eunuchs and seven maids and seven assistants, and it seems kind of odd. Some people call it an historical novel. I think it is history, but there's a lot we don't know about Esther. Who wrote it and for what reason? So why Esther? It's a fair question to ask as we begin this series. Well, I can tell you that as, as I've started work on it this week, I'm very pleased we're looking at this book. I actually think it speaks very powerfully into the situation that you and I are exactly in today. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a few moments. But I think it's well worth it, looking at this book. So well done, Joel. I think it was Joel who picked Esther. I've told you what I don't know. Let me tell you what I do know about the book of Esther. Let me um, set the scene for the whole book. And to get the most out of the book, we need to know where it fits in the Bible. 
The time is a hundred years after the exile of the Israelites into Babylon and their return back from Babylon. So if you remember your Bible history, we've got creation where things are good. Everything's ruined by the fall and it looks very bleak for a long time until God promises he's going to fix things through Abraham and his descendants. And then the Bible starts focusing on Abraham and his descendants. We see Abraham, then we see Isaac, then we see Jacob, then we see Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the, become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that, that family, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. But God, through Moses and through the plagues, brings the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're in the wilderness for a little while, for a little while but then they're brought to the promised land. And in the promised land, they get kings, especially David and his descendants, which is going to be very important, and they get the temple where they can worship God, which is going to be very important. But then, when they're in the promised land, three key events happen. The first key event is Israel as a kingdom splits up. It splits into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is confusingly often called Israel, even though it's the northern kingdom, so uh, it's got the majority of the tribes and the majority of the land, but then there's now also a southern kingdom called, not confusingly, Judah. Judah is smaller, but it maintains Jerusalem, and it therefore has the, the kings from David's line and the temple. So the first big event that happens when they're in the promised land is the kingdom splits. Israel splits into two kingdoms. The second event that happens is the northern kingdom is basically wiped out. The Assyrians come in and they demolish the northern kingdom. That's ten tribes of Israel. And basically through assimilation and um, uh, intermarriage, the northern kingdom ceases to exist. That's the second one. So the kingdom splits, then the northern kingdom goes. Then thirdly, the third event that happens is the southern kingdom, Judah, gets overtaken by the Babylons. The Assyrians used to be the superpower. They've ducked and dived. Now Babylon is the superpower. And Babylon comes in and takes out the southern kingdom. They exile them. They remove them from, from the promised land, and they have to live in Babylon as exiles. And during that time, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. But all superpowers go up and down. Soon Babylon comes to an end. Who rises up? Persia. And under Cyrus, Persia takes over Babylon and the Israelites are able to go back to the promised land. And this is the period in the Bible which you can read about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as the, the Israelites go back to the land and start to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So where are we up to in history? Esther takes place after the exile to uh, Babylon, after most of the people of God have gone back to, uh, to Jerusalem. But not all of them have gone back. Some of God's people remain in foreign lands because they've been there for decades and decades and decades now. And the promised land is a mess. It's an absolute mess. So Esther takes place not in the promised land, but in Susa, have a look at chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 1, in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And what we're going to see in the book of Esther is the story of a small Jewish community living in the Persian Empire and the dangers and the problems that they go through living in the Persian Empire as the people of God. They haven't returned to the promised land. Now, make no mistake about it, the Persian Empire at this stage is huge. Alexander will come next and have a bigger one, but up till this point, the Persian is the biggest one. 
then the Romans will come, but Persia is massive at this stage. It goes right through from India, through including parts of what today is Europe, all the way through to Egypt. But we're in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And the story of Esther will revolve around the small Jewish community, but it will revolve centrally around four main characters. Two non-Jews and two Jews. And I say Jews, not Israelites, because Jews is the term used in Esther, and I think there's a reason for it. The two non-Jews are firstly King Xerxes, who you meet in chapter 1, verse 1. In some Bibles, he's translated uh, King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. I'm going to call him Xerxes because it's easier. We meet him. He was the third ruler of the Persian Empire. We know that. You can read about Xerxes in history books outside of the Bible. Cyrus was the first. Xerxes is the third. He ruled the Persian Empire from 486 right through to 465 BC. So we're, we're, we're kind of nearly 500 years before Jesus comes. But you can see from chapter 1, verse 3, it's the third year of his reign that our story begins. Now the second non-Jew, who's going to be one of the four main characters, we didn't meet this morning. We're going to meet him next week. He's a guy called Haman. He's one of the chief advisors to King Xerxes, and he's the one who's going to cause a lot of the problems. So that's Haman. Then we've got the two Jews, who are the other two of the four main characters of this book. And we met them in chapter 2. So, Jacob, if we could have a look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 5, we met a guy called Mordecai. Mordecai is not a baddie. For some reason, I hear the name Mordecai and I think baddie. Was he a, is Mordecai a baddie in a Disney movie or something? For some reason, I hear that name, I think he's a baddie. He's not. He's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, we're told. His family were exiled under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And we can see he's not a bad guy because in verse 6, we read of Mordecai's cousin, Hadassah, better known as Esther, spoiler, spoiler alert, uh, who Mordecai's been looking after for years because her parents died. And Mordecai has taken care of her, like a father would, of a daughter. So they're the four main characters. You've got these two non-Jews, King Xerxes and Haman, his advisor, and then Mordecai and Esther. And we're going to see the story of the people of God, the small group of the people of God, living in the Persian Empire. So it's telling the story. It will focus on the two Jewish characters, but they're going to interact with King Xerxes and Haman in this foreign land all the way through. Now, the story is described oddly. I can understand why people find the book of Esther hard to study as Christians. I mentioned before that the book doesn't say the name of God anywhere in the book, but it's more than that. It's not just the name of God that's missing. God himself seems to be missing. The whole notion of what it is to be the people of God living in faith before God seems to be missing. It's, it's, a, it's a hard book to explain in that way, but that's what's happening. Daniel and Esther are the only two books in the Bible which take part wholly outside the promised land. Uh, but in Daniel, it's all, you're always thinking about the exile and getting back to the, book, to the promised land. In Esther, you're not. Apart from chapter 2, verse four, uh, 6, where it mentions that Mordecai's family was exiled, it doesn't talk about the promised land. It only focuses on living in the Persian Empire. And this has caused lots of people... Esther will call people to fast but not pray. That's weird. It doesn't talk about the Israelites living uh, under the law of God. That's weird. There's all these kind of things which make it slightly strange. And so Christians 
have not quite known what to do with Esther. How do we get lessons from it? How do we learn? How do we take uh, learnings from this strange book of the Bible? Because it's easier in other books of the Bible. When you get to the epistles in the New Testament, which are letters, the epistles are basically doctrinal statements being told to us to believe or do. It's God, through the apostle, whether it's Paul or Peter or James, saying, believe this, don't believe that. Do this, don't do that. The narrative parts of the Bible are a bit harder to work out what we're supposed to learn because the narrative parts are just describing what happened. But most of the narrative parts of the Bible still have God saying or doing certain things, so we still know kind of what to say or do. If you think of the book of Exodus, we know that God does the plagues. We know that he reveals himself as he speaks to Moses, his name. We know that he gives the law, so we know kind of what to believe and what to do. Same with the Gospels. Jesus is God, so when he speaks or does things, we're seeing God speak or do things, so we know what we're supposed to do. But that's not what happens in Esther. What are we supposed to take with Esther? We're left working, trying to work out what's God doing here, because it doesn't say God's doing anything. What's he responsible for and what's just fluke? What lessons should we take from it? But I want to say I think this is entirely deliberate in the book of Esther. This absence of God is the point of the book at one level. This seemingly absence of God, you understand. Esther is telling the story of what it's like to live as the people of God, not in the promised land when God seems absent and not doing things, where he seems invisible, where it's impossible to work out, well, what's God saying and doing right now? And how do I hold on to that and trust that? Because they're living in a society where no one's speaking about God and no one's doing the things of God. This is a place, the Persian Empire, where God doesn't play much part in public debate. God doesn't play much part in the policy-making, the law-making of the Persian Empire. God doesn't play much part in the way society, the culture, functions and lives. God's name's absent in the book of Esther, but King Xerxes' name is there 190 times in a book which is only 167 verses long. It's very clear that the society in Persia revolves around the leaders, the powerful, the rich, the influential, not the Lord. Now, as soon as I say that, can you see that's exactly the same situation you and I find ourselves in. We are the people of God living in a land which is not the promised land. We are the people of God living in a place, a culture and a society where God seems very absent from the lives and the lifestyle of the world around us. We don't see his wondrous works every day. We don't hear his voice audibly around us all the time. And the society we live in seems oblivious to God most of the time. Increasingly, it seems to go against his very ways. Now, it wasn't always that way in New Zealand, but it's increasingly becoming that way in New Zealand. God used to be part of the public debate. used to be part of the way laws and policies were made. People used to consider God in the way that they lived and the way we functioned as a society, but less and less and less in New Zealand in 2021. A hundred years ago, if you were planting a town in uh, New Zealand, the two buildings you would definitely have is a pub and a church. Ten years ago, when the earthquakes happened and the city council was looking to rebuild, 
The city council forgot about churches. That's how little we mean in today's society in New Zealand. 80 years ago, Christian morality used to have an impact in the laws on the land. There were still Sabbath laws, and uh, Christian morality was involved in lots of the laws that went on. In the last 15 months, we've passed abortion laws and euthanasia laws, and God's not even an afterthought after we've passed them. We live in a very similar world to the world of Esther. You and I are the people of God, not living in the promised land, where you can see God doing certain things and saying certain things and hold on to that. When you're in the book of Esther, or when you're us, you're actually asking yourself, well, where is God? He seems absent. He seems invisible. Who's in charge? Where's it all going? What's God doing and what's he not doing? And these are the questions that Esther raises. I think what Esther teaches implicitly because it's not explicit, because you'd have to mention God for it to be explicit. It has to be implicit. Implicitly, what Esther is teaching all the way through is that even when God seems invisible, seems absent, he's still working out his plans. He's still working out his purposes. He's still holding on to his people. He's still keeping his plans, keeping his purposes, keeping his people. So I think Esther actually is very much like our situation today. It's got a lot for us to be challenged with and encouraged by. So that's an overview of the book and how we're going to read it over the next few weeks. Now, because I've done this overview, I've only got a couple of minutes to talk about chapter 1 and chapter 2. So what I'm going to do is forgive me for going through this really quickly. I'm going to zoom through it, and I'm just going to focus on one part. The rest of the themes of these two chapters are still going to come out in the rest of the book. So Joel will preach on them. So I'm just going to touch on it very quickly. But by way of introduction into uh, chapters 1 and chapter 2 of um, Esther, if I say this phrase, what do you think of? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Now, some of you may think of the song by Good Charlotte. Shame on you if you thought of that song. It's terrible. Some of you will remember a TV program which ran from the mid-80s through to the mid-90s. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Hands up if you're not too ashamed to say you remember that TV show. Only a few of you. The rest of you remember it, but you're pretending you don't. Now, that TV show was hosted by a guy called Robin Leach, who had a very unique voice, kind of a posh, loud, shouting voice. And each week he used to focus on a celebrity person or a rich person, and the the whole episode revolved around showing you the lifestyle of the rich and famous. This is not rocket science. This is just MTV. It wasn't MTV. Now, even if you don't remember that particular show, that shows the premise of so many shows in our world showing us the life that other people live. And we saw their houses, we saw their possessions, we saw their family members, we saw the way they decorated their houses and their uh, gardens, and, and we judged them. And we envied them. And we were obsessed by them. We lapped it up because we liked to see how the other side lives. Because our world is obsessed with wealth and power, and those two things are always linked Wealth and power, uh, and most of us lack it, but we like to see what it looks like and see how other people live. Well, chapter one of Esther is like an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous for King Xerxes. In fact, I would have liked to have got Mel to read it in Robin Leach's voice. Mel, do you know what Robin Leach's voice sounds like? Mel couldn't have done it. I'm too sick to do it, but it would be good to do it because we're hearing about how incredible King Xerxes is. He rules the Persian Empire. Look at chapter 1. 
It consists of 127 provinces. That's how big this this, uh, king's kingdom is. Here's a man of huge wealth and huge power, and we see that wealth and power in three parties in chapter 1. Party 1 takes place in verse 3, where he throws a shindig for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders and the princes. Good to keep the important people uh, on your side. He throws this party for them. It lasts... 180 days. Just think about that for a moment. That's nearly six months. Today's the first day of August. That means it's all of this year bar last month. That's how long the party lasts. Now, it's not just that the party lasts that long. You've got to be able to fund the party that long. If I'm taking our whole family out for a meal, I have to budget for two weeks. That's one meal. This is 180 days. For all these people. Verse 4, it makes clear why we're being told this. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom, the splendor and glory of his majesty. Robin Leach would be very excited talking about this. But that wasn't enough. Verse 5 tells us when that party finished, he decided to throw another one. But this is a small one. It's only seven days. Still longer than any party I've ever been to in my entire life. This is for the great and the least of Susa, so that's good. He's inviting all the people of this, the, the citadel. Perhaps Susa had hosted the big party, and so this is a thank you to all of them. I don't know if that's the case, but look at the descriptions and read them in Robin Leach's voice. The hangings in the garden, the cords, the silver rings and the marble pillars. You can imagine in the newsagents in the Persian Empire reading up Persian homes and gardens, having a pictorial with the couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. I don't even know what porphyry is, and it sounds rich. And then people go out to buy similar... You you can imagine that in the Persian Empire, people went out to buy the same kind of gold goblets that Xerxes used, because they're all individual, do you see? Each one's unique. See, See the kind of power and wealth that's needed to throw this party. And it's clear that there was tons of alcohol. You've got to have lots of money to have lots of alcohol in any society in the history of the world. And verse 8 looks good at first because each guest is allowed to drink in their own way. But why is verse 8 there? They're only I don't even know what it means to drink in your own way. But what's the key point in verse 8? They're only allowed to drink in their own way. Why? Because Xerxes has decreed they can. Do you know how little freedom you've got if you have to be allowed to drink as you can because the king commands that you can and allows it? This is the power of Xerxes. This is the wealth of Xerxes. That's the second party, the small, humble, seven-day one. Then, verse 10, we meet Queen Vashti, and she gives a banquet for the women, but it's clear, really, that the, the point is where it's held, Xerxes' palace. It's more about his wealth. So we're not left in any doubt in chapter 1 of the wealth, the power and the influence of Xerxes in these three parties. But it's from this point on that things change. Verse 10, on the seventh day, King Xerxes is merry. That's code word for drunk. And he commands the seven eunuchs who work for him. Eunuchs back then often worked for in royal palaces with the royal household because leaders could be sure that eunuchs wouldn't do anything with the wives and the mistresses and the concubines. So seven eunuchs working for him. And he commands those seven eunuchs to bring his wife forward. It's clear why in verse 11. 
He wants her in her beauty, because this is a beautiful woman, wearing her royal crown, looking wonderful so that everyone else can see her. He's treating his queen like another object in his kingdom, another possession to flaunt in front of other people, the people that he so clearly sees himself above. But why do you instruct seven eunuchs to go and do this? Why not go and speak to your wife personally or or ask one person, could you please say? This is not a good portrayal here of Xerxes. In verse 12, Vashti refuses. Good honour. We're not told why, but good honour. But the result is not good because we're told the king became furious and burned with anger. If you ever doubt the truth of the scriptures, notice those little phrases. There's few things like a bruised ego or wounded pride in someone to create a disproportionate response, to wound someone so much that they lash out, and that's what we're about to see here. How is Xerxes going to respond? Well, he consults with his advisers. But look who they are, verse 13. When it comes to law and justice, the king meets with his advisers. These are wise men who understand the times, I think these are the spin merchants of the Persian uh, Empire. When something goes wrong for the rich and famous, what do they do? They normally bring in the, uh, the experts of the day who will help you craft a, a careful apology to make publicly. Now, Xerxes is too powerful to have to make a, pu- a public apology. It's the experts who tell the celebrity to say, uh, distance yourself from that, embrace this, and give it that kind of tone. Xerxes is too powerful to make an apology. He's going to give a royal edict, but it's his spin merchants who advise him on how to do it. And they say, make a royal decree. They say, women everywhere are going to hear what Vashti did, and they will despise their husbands, so you've got to nip it in the bud right now, Xerxes. You've got to replace Vashti with another queen and make a royal decree that every man should be ruler in his household. This is terrible advice, and I'll talk about why in a moment. But he's going to do it. Notice in verse 19, this is very important, a royal decree in the Persian Empire can't be repealed. Now, this is going to be very important in the chapters to come as we go through Esther, that you can't repeal it. How bad is a society where a leader can be drunk and make a a, a law, but you can't repeal it? That's how bad the Persian Empire is. Brilliant. Now, look at the result of all this. Verse 21, the kings and advisors are all pleased with this advice. And they do it. And they enact it over the whole Persian Empire. Well, again, I know I'm rushing through it, but uh, we've got to, sorry. Uh, verse 21, uh, sorry, chapter 2, Xerxes sobers up. There comes a point, doesn't there, where you suddenly realise what's happened and then you think, what am I going to do? And this is the moment for Xerxes. But he gets more brilliant advice from, uh, from an attendant to hold a search of all the available women of the empire for a replacement. Now, this is where I, I don't want to speak at all in a kind of glib way the so-called beauty contest of Esther that's spoken of is here. But when you read it clearly, or closely, the women don't have a say. They're brought to the king's palace. They're to be eligible, they're to be virgins. It involves uh, 12 months of beauty treatment, so look what you're getting. And yet, aren't you being abused? You spend a night with the king. This is a, a terrible thing that goes on. It's not just a beauty contest. Uh, But the end of verse 4, the king goes along with this advice. Now it's here we meet Mordecai and Esther. Esther ends up being taken to the palace as one of the contest. 
she gains favour with the guy who's in charge of the girls of the contest and he looks after her well and offers her advice. And Esther follows it and she ends up winning the contest and in verse 17 she's given the crown and she's made queen. And we're going to see what happens as things progress. Now we've rushed through it and excuse me for it, but that's the setup for the book of Esther. There's only one theme I want to um, draw your attention to this morning, wealth and power. And the evil that is, it's used for often and the emptiness accompanied by it in this world. Wealth and power here are used to commit evil, but it's also shown to be so empty in this world. The thing that we're obsessed by, the thing that we look for in others and we read magazines and we watch TV programs to, to hear about wealth and power and what to do with it, it helps evil hearts do evil things and it's empty in this world. We see sexual exploitation in an awful way here. And I'm sure it would have been dressed up back then as, well, look what these women get. They get 12 months of great treatment in the palace and beauty treatments, and, but it's sexual exploitation. In a similar way um, to sex, sexual exploitation in our world today. Often dressed up, it's for the good of the person, and, but is it? Or is it abuse? And today we sadly live in a, a world and a culture where women also sexually exploit men and other women at different times. But there's no doubt in this particular area men have always been the worst perpetrators. And shame on us when we, when we do it. When we use wealth and power to use, to abuse, to exploit in shameful <clears throat> and evil ways. As Christians, as people of God, we must live different lives to the world around us where there is such abuse. Let's not take part in it. And not, not just not take part in it, be committed to seeing it stopped. And it's not just what we do, it's what we watch. It's what we take part in and condone uh, with our quietness. It's not just sexual exploitation, though. For all of us... If we have people that we are responsible to, uh, or, or responsible for, that we are over in some way, how do we how do we use that, that power? How do we use that position? Do we use it with grace for their good, or do we abuse? Do we use? Do we exploit? But it's not just the evil that wealth and power is used for here. It's it's. Although I said before this could be a, a, an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, in the end, you look at Xerxes and what is he? It, it's shown to be so shallow, his wealth and power. It's shown to be so empty and futile. At first glance, Xerxes might seem like the man with all these riches and all these parties and all this power, but in the end, he's not really that powerful and he's not, certainly not fulfilled. The question all the way through Esther, I think, is the question for always the people of God who aren't in the promised land, where are you, God, and who's in charge? Clearly through the book of Esther, it's not Xerxes. Xerxes may control 127 provinces, but he can't control the heart of his wife. And good on his wife. And in his bruised ego, we see him lash out, taking the most ridiculous advice ever given. What should he have done at that point? He should have gone the next day totally ashamed and apologised to his wife for demanding to bring her out. Instead, he takes the worst advice ever given. He was worried this would get out public. He makes it a public edict. 
It's a kind of private thing between his wife and I. He makes it the deal of everything. And then he tries to force respect for husbands and families by law. Can never work that kind of way. Uh, Mordecai is the opposite. Did you notice that in these chapters? He uses whatever wealth and authority he has to what? To look after his cousin who's lost her parents. The only instruction we're told he gave to um, uh, Esther was to not reveal she's a Jew in chapter 2, verse 10, and that's for her good, not for his own good, for her good. And Esther, I take it, doesn't do it because she's been forced to by someone she lawfully has to respect, but she's taking the advice of someone she knew loved her and cared for her. The one who, we're told in verse 11, walked every day back and forth near the courtyard because he was worried about her. I pray that as the people of God, that's how we live. Do you see the difference? Esther may not mention God, but all the way through it, we're going to see the difference of people who are living in this world for this world and people who are living in this world for God. Wealth and power in this world are nearly always abused, used for evil, and in the end, it's futile. Mordecai didn't live that way. I pray we won't. Of course, the great example of not living that way is the Lord Jesus who a couple of weeks ago we saw. This is the one with all the wealth and the power in the universe. And a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, we were reminded, what did he do with that wealth and power? He left it behind to come to earth, to become a human being. That's so low we can't even imagine it. And to give his life, even death on the cross, for the good of others. That's how God uses his power and authority, his wealth and his glory, for our good. We need to wrap up. Esther is going to be a heck of a ride. I hope I've whetted your appetite for it over the next few weeks. We're going to see what life is like for the people of God in a community, in a country, in an empire where God is seemingly absent, seemingly invisible. And the people of God are left asking, where are you? What's going on? That's just like us. What we'll also see, though, is God is continuing to work out his plans continuing to work out his purposes and continuing to hold on to his people. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the chance to start this new series in the book of Esther. And we pray that as we look at it, you might, despite your name not being in the book, we may come to see you more closely. Despite um, uh, so many things being missing from the book, we might come to know your plans and purposes more closely and that as a result of that, we may trust you more, love you more and live for you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.